You're listening to Calvary Spokane's teaching series through the book of Genesis. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11 as we continue picking up in verse 10 where we left off, and we're going to deal with a question. I know it's a forefront of all of your minds. Why am I not going to live any longer? And uh, why is my life going to be so short? Maybe we'll find the answer in this passage today. If you don't mind, would you stand with me as we begin by reading through verses, uh, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 11, down to verse 26. It reads as follows. This is the account of Shem. Two years after the flood, when Shem was 100 years old, he became the father of Arphaxad. And after he became the father of Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Arphaxad had lived 35 years, he became the father of Shelah. And after he became the father of Shelah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Shelah had lived 30 years, he became the father of Eber. And after he had become the father of Eber, Shelah lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Eber had lived 34 years, he became the father of Peleg. And after he became the father of Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Peleg had lived 30 years, he became the father of Reu. And after he became the father of Reu, Peleg lived for 209 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Reu had lived 32 years, he became the father of Serug. And after he became the father of Serug, Reu lived 270 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Serug had lived 30 years, he became the father of Nahor. And after he became the father of Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Nahor had lived 29 years, he became the father of Terah. And after he became the father of Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and had other sons and daughters. And after Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Wow, that kind of says it all, doesn't it? Really? Let's pray. Father, I ask as we look at this passage tonight that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding and insight. Lord, maybe for most of us, just helping us to understand why this is even here and why this should matter and why reading it is valuable investment of our time and energy. We pray that you'd open this passage to us and as our hearts are open to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. This reading night begins with a phrase that's repeated 10 other times or 10 times altogether in the book of Genesis, and simply, this is the account of, which is the way it's translated or rendered in the NIV version. The phrase really is only one word in Hebrew, toledot, and uh, literally it translates generations or genealogies. We'd say that a generation refers to a genealogical list of somebody's descendants, or we often refer to it more colloquially as simply being your family tree your father's father's father, father's father, and so forth for generations back. As I previously noted, there are 10 of these kind of genealogies or family trees in the book of Genesis. The first begins in chapter 2, the last one in chapter 37. And they're designed to show us in part, as Paul later explained to the Athenian philosophers there in chapter 17 of Acts, verse 28, he said of God, for in him we live and move and have our being. And then he added, for we are his offspring. In short, it's a way of saying that we look at God, the father, the creator of everything as being really our first father, the one who created us, the one who caused us to come into being. 
And we, every one of us, are related to God or essentially being the offspring so that uh, the first genealogy that we read in chapter 2 begins saying this is the account or this is the genealogy or this is the family of tree of God the creator. And it begins by starting the story there, to whom, the one to whom all mankind is physically, intellectually, and spiritually both dependent and connected. And the last of these toledotes or genealogies that we find in Genesis ends with Jacob, who is the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, the book of Genesis doesn't present us with the complete general genealogical record of mankind. Uh, in other words, it's rather a focused, specific family tree that traces God's plan of redemption so that even though each of these men had other children, sons and daughters, it really follows a very specific line or heritage of their descent, leading us ultimately to the birth of Jesus Christ as the end of the genealogical record of God's accounting. So beginning with creation, we find these successive toledots or genealogies from Adam to Seth to Noah to Shem, Terah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to 12 tribes of Israel, and then finally ending with the person of Christ in Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 3, where we have the last genealogical record because they represent the fulfillment of the promise that is given by God when man first fell into sin. If you recall in Genesis 3.15, after Adam and Eve had been confronted by God with their transgression, he made a promise to them. He says, I will put enmity between the serpent, you and the serpent and the woman, between your offspring, or literally the word zarah literally means your seed, your speaking of singular seed, that will descend from you, and hers, and he will crush, that seed will crush Satan's head. That, in other words, he will destroy his power and authority over mankind through sin and death. And then he concludes, and Satan will strike his heel. So essentially, we call that the proto-evangelum, basically the first story of God's plan of redemption, that God was going to strike Eve's seed and crush him by the cross, but through the resurrection, he would redeem all mankind. So the very act of the serpent to destroy the plan of God would be the very thing that would release its impetus. So when Jesus used the illustration, he says, unless a seed of grain falls to the ground and dies, it can't live. Now, most of us understand, because we took biology in high school, that when you put a seed in the ground, the outer shell dies, and then the germ that's within it germinates, that's why we call it germ, it germinates and the plant begins to grow up. And essentially, that's what the cross of Christ is about. Christ being broken upon the cross and releasing the divine germ that sent life into the world and with it the promise not only of redemption but of everlasting life of the resurrection that God promised each of us. And so it's really kind of fulfilling what Isaiah said back in Isaiah 53, 5 where he says, he was wounded for our transgressions, that Christ became broken on the cross and that's exactly the thing that we find that God promised to Adam and Eve going back all the way to the beginning of when they first fell away from the Lord. Now, the reason we have these genealogies is because the Jews were both copious and careful keepers of those genealogical records. I mean, they dedicated themselves to it so that even today there are many Jewish families 
uh, who can present, pr produce for you their entire genealogical history, which sounds astounding to us because many of us, having been the children of migrants, can't even trace back our ancestors more than a few generations, if at all. Now, my wife was so kind for Christmas, she got me uh, my, uh, a DNA test so I could see if my parents had been telling me the truth. And I, so I spit in the jar and sent it off, and I was so relieved to find out they were mostly true. So anyway, <laughs> but it's, it's one of those kind of interesting things because we don't have that sense of history. But you can even talk to a Bedouin today in Israel, and he can probably right off the top of his head recite you any place from 20 to 40 generations of his family history back in time, just simply because that is such an important part of their life. Unlike us who are newcomers who are separated from our past, they feel intricately linked to the past, and the idea of migrating away from that land to them is close to death itself. You might understand that many of migrants who come here, particularly from the Middle East, one of their greatest struggles is the fact that they feel disconnected from their roots, their heritage. They feel like displaced people because the idea that you are the child of your descendants, you are the son of your father's father for generations back, is a part of your identity that you find in yourself. This is who I am. I am the son of, and they go back for many generations. So the Jewish culture has instilled that, and many of them still keep those careful records. And part of it is because it's how they preserve their identity as God's chosen people. In Deuteronomy 7, God made a promise to Israel. He said, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his people. The Lord did not choose you because you were more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest of all people, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers. It's almost like saying, I picked you to be on a basketball team because you're the shortest person I know. It doesn't make a lot of sense to us because we're going to look for the tallest guy or gal in the room. But God says, no, because when I win the game, the glory is going to be mine, not yours. Everybody's going to know you didn't win the game. I did. And God is essentially saying to them, I chose you because you were the smallest of all people, the weakest of all people, the fewest, and also because I made a promise to your forefathers. And one of the things about God is he never, ever, ever breaks his promise because it would be completely a denial of his very nature. He is the word of truth, and nothing changes from that. But when we talk about Israel being a chosen people, it's not because they were a better people, certainly. The verse we just read certainly proves that to be the case, but rather they are chosen for a purpose. They were designed by God to be a conduit through which his plan of redemption in Christ would reach the rest of mankind. And when you understand that, then you can begin to make sense of these genealogies that aren't just limited to the book of Genesis. They appear throughout the books of the Old Testament, repeated over and over again. And the reason is because God wants us to understand that it is through Christ that salvation has come according to the promise of God from the very beginning. And that's also why the New Testament begins with what? A toledot, a, a genealogy, a family tree going all the way back to Adam and coming up to the time of Christ to show us that what Criswell referred to as God's scarlet thread of redemption, which is why the genealogies are selective in that they only trace the line that leads ultimately to Christ. And when it reaches Christ, it stops because as Paul said in Ephesians 2.14, 
He himself, speaking of Christ, is our peace who has made both one. Who are the both? Jew and Gentile. He's made both Jew and Gentile one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Now, that reference to the middle wall is a very literal reference to a wall. That around the temple there was a short wall, probably about four feet tall, and it had signs saying, if you're not a Jew, don't go across this line or you could face the penalty of death. So there was a separation. A Gentile could come and pray to the temple, but he couldn't pray in front of the temple. There was a wall of separation. And he said, but when Christ came, he took away that wall of separation and he made both Jew and Gentile one, making all who trust in Christ more than sons of Adam, which we all are, but also sons of Abraham by faith. Or as Paul said to the Galatians in Galatians 3, 7, those who believe are the children of Abraham, that we become part of the house of God. And that's why even today there's a kind of a fad within Christianity to kind of go back and kind of rediscover our Jewish roots and our Jewish identity. Now, I'm the last one to be critical of that because I'm totally fascinated by those connections and that historicity and that relationship of Christianity to its Jewish foundations. But when it comes to a place of people saying, now you need to go back and begin to observe the Jewish laws, I wonder to myself, have they never read the book of Galatians? <laughs> I mean, that's the whole point of Galatians was that in Christ we are one and that becomes unnecessary. No, we don't have to be circumcised, especially at our age. No, we don't have to wear you know, tassels or, or, or lock curls on the side of our head or grow a beard or wear special clothing or have tassels or any of those kinds of things that sometimes people think, well, we need to start doing this. I, I, I don't want to be critical. I don't want to paint with a broad brush, basically, because we have people who say, well, I'm a messianic believer, and, and I think that's wonderful if we're talking about somebody who's coming out of Judaism into Christ and has become fulfilled in their relationship with Christ because now they are a completed Jew, as they like to say. But what is troubling to me is when they come to Christians and say, it's great that you know Jesus, but if you really want to know God, you'll also begin to go to church on this day and you'll come and worship in this way and you'll begin to observe the, the Seder, Seder and all these other traditions that are part of Judaism. Um, all of that was fulfilled in Christ. So when Jesus said, I have come to abolish you and know the law, I've come to fulfill it then it's, it's almost like I drove into the gas station, I got my tank full, and I drove in a circle, I came right back, and now I'm trying to fill my tank again. You don't need to do that because your tank is full. When I got Christ, I got all that I needed to get forever and eternity. I'm a full tank. I don't need anything else. I've had people say to me about from various ideas saying, well, don't you want everything that Jesus has for you or that God has for you? And my answer is absolutely. But I don't want anything that he doesn't have for me. And so he's made it very clear in the New Testament what God has for us. We are complete in Christ. And Paul couldn't say it any more clearly, except he said it repeatedly in various ways that we are complete in Christ. We don't have to go back into the rituals. In fact, read through the book of Hebrews if that Galatians isn't enough for you. And if that isn't good enough, read Romans. And if that isn't good enough, I don't know where else to send you. But I'm telling you, a significant portion of the New Testament deals with this very issue because this was the first heresy that the church had to confront. 
The very first heresy. In the first six centuries, they had tons of heresies they had to deal with, all sorts of strange names that wouldn't be familiar to most of you, but they had to deal with a lot of heresies. And the very first one was the idea that Christians had to convert to Judaism, that knowing Christ was not enough, they also had to become followers of the law. And to that, which Paul kind of threw the gauntlet down and said, "We're we're not going there. And the church and the gruesome council of, recorded in Acts 15 agreed with that as well. And so it is from this forward point, uh, we, write, we need to continue to emphasize it because most false doctrines are kind of like dandelions. They come back year after year. You know, it's just, I don't know, I think I got the roots and there they are all over again. And that's kind of the way false doctrine is. It has a way of just percolating back up to the surface no matter how many times you try to cut it down or root it out. And I, I hate to say this, it sounds so pessimistic, but I guarantee you that there are probably, given a group this size, there are people here who are going to say, you know, I've always wondered what it was like to be a Jew. <laughs> I'm just going, well, the Holocaust should give you a warning. But nonetheless, the reality is God hasn't called you to pretend to be or to pose as if you're something that you're not. You're complete in Christ. And if you're a, a Jew who has come to Christ, you're complete in Christ. Your Judaism may make perfect sense now, but it doesn't complete you. It doesn't make you more saved. It doesn't make you saved in any way better than anybody else because it's all in Christ alone. You are better in Christ than you would be by anything else, and there's no need to add anything to that. So I think I've said enough to offend just about everybody at this point, so I'll move on. But there's more to this genealogy just than what we find related to us in these 10 transitional generations from Shem to Abraham. They also record something that is of great interest to every one of us, and that's the fact that dramatically there's an increased effect of sin and death upon the lifespans of humanity after the flood. In other words, sin not only killed people, but it also killed them quickly. That as sin moves into human society, it kills us more quickly than it did in the very beginning. In fact, one of the reasons is given us in Ecclesiastes 7 where he said, don't be over wicked, why die before your time? Because we love to say, point out as Paul did the Romans, that as sin increases, so grace also increases, and so it is. But also when sin increases, so does the destructive effects of sin increase. That's why we often talk about cultures decaying, societies becoming corrupted and eventually collapsing under the weight of their own immorality. And so one of the things we have to be always aware of is that it's not something that we just turn our eyes, our back to or pretend isn't there when we see a society slipping deeper and deeper into darkness. What is needed in those times is for people to speak for righteousness and speak truth into those who are in the power to bring about dark things. Because if we don't, there are those who will simply be caught up in the tsunami of immorality and and decadence. But so, so we see in the story that prior to the flood, we see life expectancies average around 900 years. With only two exceptions, we have Enoch, who at 365 years of age is raptured into heaven. He's, he's uh, carried away by God. He, he was not. He was taken away by God. And then there's, interestingly, the father of Noah, a man by the name of Lamech, 
only lived to be 777 years. Now, in my Bible, I have some secret notes. It says, because he smoked cigars. And that's why he only lived to be 770. <laughs> no. Uh, we're not told why his life was shortened. Because even his son, Noah, lives to be 950 years. And basically, he lives the third longest life of any of the patriarchs of the, what we call the antediluvian or be time before the flood. But he also lived 350 years after the flood, which kind of suggests to us, I would say, that something changed on planet Earth after the flood. There's something that altered. Because after the flood, we find the lifespans begin to shorten quickly and, and dramatically. In one generation, from Noah to Shem, the life expectancy drops from 950 years to 600 years. 300-year loss in life expectancy. If you look at the next series of generations, our facts said, and Shela and Eber, they live, they die in the 400s. Again, when we get to Peleg and Serug and Terah, they live to the 200s. Then Abraham and Isaac, 175 and 180 respectively. You get to Jacob, he lives 120 years. And there are a couple of exceptions that we find in, in people like Joseph, who lives 110 years, and Moses, who lives 120 years, but their age has now become exceptional to the point that people comment on how old they are. So that within 10 generations, it tells us that the lifespan of people were shortened by 90%. I mean, we would say that's a serious health issue that needs addressing, but it was even, but it's even shortly after that life expectancy we find actually levels off at 70 years, at least according to Moses. He says the length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength, yet their span is but trouble and sorrow for they quickly pass and fly away. Now, it's interesting because he said our years are 70 at the most, 80. Do you know what the average life expectancy on planet Earth is today according to World Health Organization? 71.4 years, <laughs> just under 72 years of age. So it hasn't changed when we're thinking about here is Moses writing to us 3,500 years ago about how long people live, and today men have not lived any longer. What we find is that people aren't on average living longer. There are more people who are reaching maximum uh, age of longevity but they're not necessarily living longer. In fact, there's a few examples of people that you know, live to be 100 or 110, and, and they get to be interviewed on the Today Show and things like that, but they're, they're not that many. There's more of them than maybe in the past as far as you know, but there's not that many. Most people will end their lives someplace between 70 and 80 years of age. And I, I, you know, for people like me at 68, this is scary, scary prospects. You know, Because the first 12 years of my life went like that. And the next 12 years, I mean, I could use a calendar for a fan. It's flying so fast, you know, it's just going by. So you realize that it is a few days. It's short. It quickly passes, as Moses says. And then what happens? We fly away. There's something very important in that that we'll touch on a little bit later on. But there's a really important and significant thing in that. But clearly something had to change after the flood. But the question remains, what was it? What happened on planet Earth? And there are no shortages of, of guesses, but let me be honest, 
Nobody has the answer. Everybody guesses. And I'm just going to give you, go through the list of all the popular ideas that are out there. And, you know, you can decide if one of them fits your perspective. But I'm going to try to convince you that the one I end with is the right one. And you need to agree with me. I mean, it's not that important. Just your salvation depends upon getting this right, right? (laughs) For those of you on the web, I'm joking. Okay. Anyway. But the first one is that some people say it's either myths, mistakes, or misunderstandings. And what do they mean? Well, saying it's a myth, the most common explanations by those who are skeptical of the Bible's accuracy and authority is that these are basically fanciful exaggerations based upon ancient myths and ancient legends. Yet one has to ask the question, I would think, that if the genealogies are reliable in other places where we can demonstrate that they are, and they all follow the same basic outline and structure and are written not as poems but as historical narratives. I mean, when you look at history, those are two very different genres and you make the distinction they're written as historical narratives. It makes no sense to say that some are historic and some are not. It's kind of got to be one or the other. So the tendency is to look to the later ones and say, well, those are accurate. We can see where they follow what we know historically. And say the earlier ones, therefore, must be made up in a pure myth. You'd have to wonder, what was wrong with the writers that they couldn't make that distinction when they were writing? Another thing is that people say, well, it was just a mistake. The copyist or the scribes made some kind of error in the copying. In fact, somebody suggested the ancient writers basically misunderstood what was written and instead of what was written to be 900 months was actually translated as 900 years. But there's a problem with that because if we're talking about 900 months, then that means that Seth was born when Adam was 11. So, I mean, you know, it just, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It doesn't really add up. So when we look at these kind of things, we have to realize that there are some critical problems here. But also, isn't it logical to say that, and we have to give the writers who are writing these things some credibility, because wouldn't they notice the discrepancy? Wouldn't they notice that we went from listing people nine, eight hundred years old, and all of a sudden shifts to people who are living 600, 400, 200, 100, 70 years? Do you think that the men who were copying this down didn't notice that transition and that change? I would suggest to you that actually they meant to point that out to us and we're supposed to notice that something is going wrong here. Because it always traces back to what God said. If you sin, you will die. And what I'm saying and what we see in nature is the rate of death really actually ratchets up the longer the engine runs and the more death becomes active within the human condition. Also, it's important to note that Genesis is not the only ancient writing that lists people of incredibly long years. In fact, when we talk about the Sumerian kings list or the Persian kings list or some of the ancient texts, they list people of being 1,000 to 1,500 years of age. And uh, again, most people who are skeptical will immediately consider that or look at it and say, well, it's obviously fabricated or not true. But we have no way of either proving it's correct or disproving that it's incorrect or it's correct, or whatever that is. Well, moving on to a second explanation that people give is saying that what happened is that people did live shorter lives, but it was based upon diet. 
And the reason I think it's important to talk about this is because there's actually been whole Christian movements and non-Christian movements based upon the idea that diet is the key to longevity. Now, to a certain degree, we know that's true. If you live on a consistent diet of bacon, you're going to live forever. <laughs> At least I'm trying that out to see if that's true. <laughs> you know, I just think that uh, pig fat and sodium are the key to longevity. I, I just happen to believe that. Add chocolate and you've got it made. Anyway, but what they say is basically that after the flood, man is allowed to eat meat. And since the earth's vegetation was largely destroyed because of the flood, and it would take time to replant it from the seedlings that, that uh, Noah undoubtedly took upon the ark, that basically there wasn't edible vegetation as we know. And so they had to eat something. But what happens is, if that's the reason why people begin to grow old, we have to ask, why is it that we don't find vegetarians living longer than the rest of us? Now, if you are addicted to Google and, and Facebook and things of that nature, you can certainly get the impression that by eating a vegetarian diet or something like that, you're going to live forever. But I'll never forget years ago, uh, Rodal pu publication, the, uh, Charles Rodal, who was the publisher of... Uh, Health and Prevention, uh, Prevention Magazine was on the Dick Cavett Show. It was a talk show back in the early ages, back in prehistoric time when you had hit rocks together to get a picture on your TV. And anyway, he's, he's interviewing him, and the guy's 70 years of age, and he, he says to Dick Cavett, Cavett, because of my macrobiotic diet, I'm going to live to be 100 years of age. No exaggeration, he had a massive heart attack and died right on the set. Dropped dead that very moment. So, you know, uh, I asked uh, some old guy one time, I said, how come you don't, you know, follow some of these health fads? And he says, everybody I know who does dies young. Now, <laughs> now I know some of you are getting really upset because you're, you're trying to convince your husband or wife to eat more vegetables. Um, but there is no evidence that we have medically, and I've looked and tried to find it, that you're going to live longer. Maybe for certain people you're going to live healthier but it's not, no guarantee that you're going to live a long life and certainly not anything near the ages that we see in the Scriptures. Um, and the, uh, just a little bit of warning too. Eating ve vegetarian diet, often people end up lacking the basic nutrients, um, uh, protein, fatty acids, iron, zinc, iodine, calcium, vitamin D, and B12, uh, which are found in abundance in meat but not necessarily uh, found in vegetables. You have to make a... Ch Oftentimes, you have to take supplements in order to supplement your diet. I know I've just opened a can of worms to a whole discussion. That's because our ground is so sterile. It doesn't have the nutrients. Yeah, you may be right. But I'm not giving up ribeye. <laughs> As Ken Graves used to say, I'm hungry and something is going to have to die. Anyway... <laughs> So, anyway, I don't think the diet argument works, but that's my opinion, and it's never been wrong yet. No, that's my opinion. But the third thing that people put out, and I, and I thought this might be viable at one time, was the idea that oxygen was the problem. You see, before the flood, uh, oxygen levels we can, we can measure, actually, by what we find in excavations under the earth were at much higher levels than they are today. Um, and it changed significantly after the flood. 
And the idea is that if there were more oxygen, that bodies would heal faster and it would eliminate disease altogether. And so they, that's where people began to, or scientists began to build hyperbaric uh, um, uh, chambers that you could go in and get saturated and bombarded by uh, more oxygen. In fact, there are some treatments that show benefits from increased oxygen supply uh, on a temporary basis. But in other cases, if you get too much oxygen, it can be poisonous. In fact, when we, one, one writer put it really well, he says, oxygen is extremely reactive as a gas, causing oxidation where your do body doesn't want it. People often eat foods that are high in antioxidants to reduce these extra free radicals that enter the body from oxygen. So the idea that, I mean, I think uh, when uh, Michael Jackson had a hyperbaric chamber built on his estate and he would go in there and sit in there with the idea that somehow by bombarding himself with more oxygen he'd live longer and we know he dropped dead at 50. So, you know, there's no real evidence. And I won't say it's not helpful because sometimes it can be very helpful under a doctor's direction and guidance and supervision to be treated by, you know, extra oxygen. But it's not... It's not uh, always healthy, and too much of it can be unhealthy for the reasons I just stated. Um, but uh, that brings us to the fourth possibility. And some people say, well, the environment changed so radically that the rate and decline of longevity following uh, the flood uh, actually mirrors the rate of decay observed in, oxygen, uh, in organisms when they're exposed to radiation or to toxins. In other words, if you expose an organism to radiation or to toxins, it begins to deteriorate at a rather fast rate. And, there's, and some, some scholars say that the rate is the same as we see expressed in this particular passage. But one of the problems with that is that Noah, who is the third longest lived person recorded in the Bible, uh, the only ones that are longer are Methuselah and, uh, and, and Jared. And one of the things that's interesting is that um, he even lives longer than, than Adam does, that if the environment affects us in such a way, and it's a main cause for this lack of longevity, we have to answer the question, why is it that Noah lives so long, 350 years yet after the time of the flood? So the time Noah lives after the flood is longer than the lives of many of his descendants after him, even coupled together. So that brings me down to what I think is the most logical possibility, and that would be genetic defects. You see... Um, Genetic defects tend to become more strongly expressed in a population, especially when that gene pool is constricted. And what we have in Genesis is two examples of the gene pool being constricted. The first one is with the flood. Suddenly humanity goes from millions down to eight. And you know how it is with dogs. I remember when, I, when we first started going over to Russia, I was amazed at the beauty of their dogs. They were all such purebred, so, so healthy and strong. And they started bringing Russian dogs into the United States to breed with our American dogs, especially some of our breeds which had been so inbred because there were so few of them 
that they had all sorts of extra problems. I remember uh, my wife and I have had a number of dogs, and many of them have been inherited from our kids when they moved out and couldn't take them with them. It's one of those gifts that they want to keep on giving to you long after they're gone. And one of those dogs, our daughter had a Sharpei, a Chinese Sharpei. And uh, if there's ever an animal that you looked at and said, this was a mistake, that's the Sharpei. You know, the personality of a pit bull who's got a bad attitude with, with this long, floppy skin. And, you know, the very first thing we had to do is spend $500 just to have its eyes trimmed so it could see. And I remember one time it went out and it got into a fight and it loved to get into fights and it came home. The skin would rip, would tear like paper. It was crazy, and, and I didn't know what to do, so I we took it to the vet and paid $100 to have it, the thing stitched back up, and I come home, and the next day, he does it again. And I looked at him and said, you're on your own from here on out. <laughs> I, I, and, you know, he, he did that, and he just had scars all over his body. But these things were unhealthy, and they didn't live very long because there are so few of them in the world that they started interbreeding and they didn't have a very wide genetic pool. How do you change that? When they found dogs in Russia that hadn't been bred with dogs in America, they brought them interbreeded and what they're doing is expanding the gene pool and built, basically filtering out a lot of the genetic defects. But what happens in, with mankind when suddenly the population is reduced to eight and then secondarily after that we find the scattering from the Tower of Babel and it isolates people into, once again into smaller groups. The chances geneticists will tell you is that genetic mutations and defects we can become multiplied much more quickly and have a much more uh, aggressive way of expressing themselves in that population base. And so what we find is these unhealthy characteristics began to show themselves. And that's why I think it's interesting because in it, just a possibility, when we look at Noah's father who lived, Lamech, who only lived 777 years, unlike the rest of the generation. Is it possible? And I say it, I say it because it is possible. I can't prove it right. You can't prove me wrong. So there. But is it possible that he literally was carrying some kind of genetic mutation that was passed on to Noah and he maybe of Noah's wife and they passed on to their children and it began to express itself because we find suddenly Lamech, who only lives 770 years, has a grandson by the name of Shem who only lives 600 years. And Shem has grandchildren who live shorter and shorter and shorter periods of time. You see, what you have to understand, it doesn't take very much of a genetic flaw or error or mutation or defect, however you want to phrase it, to have dramatic impact upon a person's health. There's a, a genetic disease called progeria. Uh, it's caused by a single point of mutation in a DNA strand. And what it does is it causes the body parts, including the organs, to age rapidly and cause death, usually by the age of 13 years. And so you've probably seen, I mean, I've seen uh, children who look like they're old men or old women when they're really only five, six, seven, eight years of age, and it's because of this mutation, their body deteriorates at a very rapid rate. It's a possibility, certainly not progeria, because it's way too fast, but it may be something as simple as a slight mutation in one of those ancestors that passed on and has reduced the ability for mankind to live beyond a certain point uh, based upon the basic programming. It's interesting because, you know, aging happens because the rate of gene uh, production, or excuse me, uh, cell production, 
uh, decreases as you get older. I mean, from the time you're born until you're about 25, generally your body is, is producing more cells than are dying. And every cell in your body has what we call a, a clock, a, a cell clock that basically put, dies, it tells the cell that its life is over and it will die, and it sheds it. So as long as you're producing more cells than you are losing, you're going to be growing, maturing, and, and improving in stature and all the rest of things which we see with our children. But from the age of 25, the rate of production begins to go downhill until you get to a certain age where your body, the cells of your body are dying faster than they're being replaced, and that's called aging. So what happens? The cells in your face begin to sag and drop, and, and they're not as uh, healthy, and they're not as, as stable because more and more of them are slowly deteriorating, and you begin to show the marks of aging throughout your entire body. You know, that's why when I was 25, I could eat from morning to sunset and never gain a pound, and now I can eat hardly anything. I mean, I limit myself to a 500-calorie diet, and I still gain weight. I can't figure it out. But anyway, that just went right over your head, didn't it? <laughs> oh, I, I won't even explain it. <laughs> if you don't know the difference, enjoy dinner. Anyway, but one of the things I think is that um, this is such a, an important thing to realize because there is one exception where there are cells that the clock doesn't turn off the cell and the cell doesn't die. And this is what's been puzzling to scientists who are trying to figure out how do we extend people's longevity. The problem is there's one cell that just doesn't die. In fact, there are cells that have been taken out of people and put into storage and they are still replicating in storage 30, 40, 50, 60 years after it. And it's got a name. It's called cancer. Cancer. So this becomes a catch-22. I don't want to die. I want my cells to continue to grow forever and ever. Well, if they, all the cells begin to replicate and don't die, then you end up with cancer in your body. And those are the very things that we try to kill through radiation, through chemicals, and other things of that nature, through removed by surgery and so forth. So it's interesting because God has seemed to have put a boundary on our years. Now, one of the important things about the long lives of these ancient characters is that vital historical information was both remembered and repeated from generation to generation. Even in the Middle East, you'll find that people, again, as I said, not only do they keep record of the genealogies, they keep oral histories of their families. And it's a sacred responsibility to remember, to learn it, to remember it, to recall it, and to repeat it and pass it from generation to generation to generation. So unlike me, who have to spit in a jar and get a DNA result to get an idea of where I've come from, and I'll just be honest, when I looked at the results, I come from so many holes in the ground, I don't even know who I am anymore. But nonetheless, here's the, here's, here's the simple reality is because of that, this information that we have is repeated. In fact, it's interesting to note that Abraham's life overlapped the lifetime of Shem, the son of Noah. That Methuselah's life would have or Shem's life would have overlapped the life of Methuselah, and Methuselah's life overlapped that of Adam's. 
So when you understand that Adam could have related to his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, and so forth, for generations, keep in mind they don't have Facebook and they don't have TV, so they could generations they could repeat these stories and remember them down many generations, and then those generations could repeat it for other generations, and then that, you only needed three people to remember the story to carry it over 2,000 years of Earth's history, which is what's recorded the first in the book of Genesis. It's not that hard to, to visualize, and I think one of the reasons that those long lives were there was for this purpose, that information could be accurately transmitted from generation to generation. But secondly, I think, today we tend to look at the, a shortened life as a curse. And most of us do something and try and to extend our lives as long as possible. I know that some people don't, but most people do. Yet, when Noah is born, his father Lamech names him Noah, which means rest. And then he explains why he named him rest. He says in, in, in Genesis 5, 29, he will comfort us in the labor and the painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. In other words, Lamech has said, life is a drag. It's a burden, it's a toil, it's hard, it's difficult. And when Noah comes, we will experience rest. Is it possible that the rest he found was a shortened life? That rather than living 900 years, he lived 700 years? And the reason I say that is because Revelation 14, 13 says this, And then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor. Here's my point. Our hope is not found in a long life. I mean, we have theologies in the church that say, you know, you can be healthy, wealthy, and wise if you just have enough faith or whatever the ingredient is that they think to sprinkle uh, the fairy dust they want to sprinkle over your life to make everything different. As if the sum purpose of life is to extend it as long as we possibly can. But our hope is not life here. Our hope is eternal life, a place where I'm told I'm going to have eternal, pure pleasure in which there will be no toil, no sweat, no sorrow, no death, no disease, none of the things that plague humanity and, and become increasingly issues the longer you live. And that's why, as Isaiah said in Isaiah 55 too, he said, why do you toil for what does not satisfy and that's, I think, the trap that we live in today. We, are, we have bought into this concept that the purpose of life is to get the most out of the 70, 80 years that we have on this planet and to extend that to its further boundaries so we can get to be 100, 110. We have guys like Lusk and other guys, Elon Musk, who are talking about, Leon, excuse me, Elon Musk, who are saying, you know, we're going to become cyborgs and we're going to live to be, uh, you know, endless. We'll live 250 years because we'll replace this body with a, you know, uh, a technologically advanced melding of computers and flesh and we'll exist forever because our minds will be transferred from one to the other. And I think to myself, that sounds like hell. <laughs> that sounds like hell, you know. It's where the worm never dies. You know? I mean, we should be people who are real, recognizing all the time that our hope isn't to find our best life now. Our life is to, our hope is to find Christ, to to be with Him. That 
this is the hope that animates the soul of those who love God, is to be with our Savior for all of eternity. So I think all of this discussion becomes crazy, but the warning that we're given in places like 1 John 2.15, when he says, love not the world, the word world there is cosmos. And cosmos doesn't mean just doesn't mean the, the atmospheric presence or, or terrain that we live in. It's talking about the, the spiritual and emotional and moral atmosphere that's all around us, the value system of our culture. He says, don't love that because evil comes of loving that. So it's one of those kind of things that I love my life. There's a lot of things in my life I do not love. There are some things I think are wonderful. One of the greatest things in the world is being a grandfather. It's the greatest thing, man. You get all the pleasure and none of the work. And it's just really a joyful thing. But the simple fact is, I look at my father-in-law who just turned 95 and has kind of an outward bound goal of maybe I'll make it to 100, although I asked him what's the secret of his longevity and he simply said, I just wake up every day. And he says, and one day I won't. <laughs> that's a great perspective. But he doesn't, but that's not even his hope. He says, he just told us the other day, he says, I look forward to the day when I'll go to heaven and I'll meet my father who died when I was two years old and I never knew. You just realize this is a man who's gotten real clear on what the meaning of life is and what the purpose of life is. As my friend used to always say, we weren't created for time, we were created for eternity. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you'd open our minds, our hearts to your will that we might understand not only these passages that we've looked at in the context of what you're doing even now, but we'd understand it in terms of the end of all things. God, you created us for you, and you prepared an eternal place for us to be with you forever. You said, I go to prepare a place for you, and if it were not so, I would not have said it. Lord, help us to recognize that that's where our fulfillment will be found. That's where all of our ambitions will be realized. That's where our true full identity will be seen and understood. And that's where all of our fears, our doubts, our insecurity, all our pain, our suffering, sorrow, and disappointments will be left behind. And we will be with you. God, help us to see that and understand that clearly we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you all stand as we close in worship?